A lot of people now look back and think the federal government got drunk and, in fact, the American consumers got drunk. How would you as president try to break those bad habits of too much debt and too much easy credit? Welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. And I don't want to be the leader of the free world, especially if I have to answer questions like that one from Tom Brokaw. Me neither. Today is Wednesday, October 8th. It is 3.29 p.m. here in New York. And uh uh, we are giving the time because this is such a fast-moving time. For all we know, everything we're saying now is irrelevant because, I don't know, we gave up on the dollar or who knows what's happening. Some country went bankrupt. Some country went bankrupt. But here's uh, – but we have a wonderful show for you today that uh, I, I really like. I think this is our best one yet. It I might re- be, yeah. I think this is a very yeah. good one. A little bit after I woke up this morning, got the email alert that there was a global coordinated rate cut. Uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve and central banks from Europe and the U.K. and Canada and Sweden and Switzerland all got together and said, hey, let's cut interest rates all at the same time. Now, the number might not sound impressive here in the U.S. They went down half a percent from 2% to 1.5%, but that is a big, big deal in the world of central bankers. Um, It's our feeling here at Planet Money that a lot of people hear this thing, oh, there was a rate cut, the Federal Reserve. It's not completely clear what that means. So we are going to do what Planet Money does. We're going to break this down. And um, we had, Laura, I think you said after this, this was your favorite interview we've done yet. Oh, yeah. This was fabulous. So we have this with Amr Sufi of the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. He's a professor of, um, well, we'll get into that. He's a professor of something to do with money. Definitely. What is a rate cut and, and why do we care? Why is this the front page news? Well, when the Federal Reserve and other central banks cut interest rates, they are effectively lowering the cost, at least in the short term, of borrowing, both by consumers and by businesses. So an attempt to try to revive the economy is usually the kind of goal of having a cut in interest rates. That being said, there has been no doubt throughout this crisis that the U.S. Federal Reserve is quite actively attempting to bolster the economy. So an additional rate cut by the Federal Reserve is just more of a strong signal that the Federal Reserve is committed to trying to revive the economy. But this was not just the Federal Reserve. I mean, we knew before this morning, because Ben Bernanke basically told us yesterday that he was going to cut interest rates, but this was coordinated. We had... um, we had the, the Federal Reserve, we had the European Central Bank, we had the Bank of England, we had Sweden and Switzerland and Canada all cutting rates at the same moment. What's the significance? I mean, my life is in dollars. I live in America. Why do I care that Sweden and Switzerland and Canada and the UK are joining in on today's global rate cut? Is that typical? Do they always do it together? Uh, well, I think one thing that actually both common everyday people and very highbrow economists agree upon is that the expectations of consumers, whether they think the economy is going to be good, whether they think the economy is going to be bad, and also the expectations of businesses, whether they think the economy is going to be good, whether it's going to be bad, 
is absolutely critical to GDP growth. And the reason is, if I'm confident that the economy is going to be strong, I'm more likely to go out and buy a new car. I'm more likely to go out and shop for new clothes. And part of what the central banks of the world are trying to do is to manage expectations of consumers and businesses worldwide. So they're they've become the therapists, the um, the emotional counselors of the world. They yeah. are can, can you help me with my own anxiety about this, Amir? Can I tell you what it is? Mm-hmm. First, we had the $700 billion bailout bill pass. And the next thing we knew, the, the Fed was moving into buying commercial paper and basically saying that it would offer the short-term loans to, um, to companies that can't get them anyplace else. So that sort of suggested that maybe the bailout wasn't going to be enough. And then the next day, we get up and they've cut the interest rate, which suggests that neither the bailout nor the move into commercial paper is enough. I think you're exactly right. I completely agree with you that part of managing consumer expectations is being able to convince them that the actions you are taking have a real difference on the economy. And I think increasingly looking at the market reaction in the days after the $700 billion bailout, in the day you know of the commercial paper buy- buyback program, and even today, I just looked, you know, there doesn't seem to be a huge positive reaction. I think you're right. It does basically build in the expectation by consumers and businesses and Wall Street participants that whatever is wrong with the economy, the Federal Reserve doesn't have the power to fix it. And that's a very dangerous thing because that just kind of leads to a vicious cycle where people become very pessimistic. And as a result, they stop buying, which only makes the economy worse. And I want to switch to that, the, the consumer. Um, Amr, when you and I spoke on the phone this morning, uh, you said to me you think there's a debate that is not happening in America, that basically the your profession, economists, the government, and us in the media are just fully focused on this credit market, on banks lending to each other and lending to other people as the sum total of this crisis. You see it differently. I think that's right. I think let me be clear from the beginning that I think there is a very important credit crunch going on that is likely to have real effects on the economy. However, just about every single recession we've had in the last 50, you know, 100 years has been precipitated by a sharp drop in consumption or sales. What happens then is that businesses massively cut back on their investment, they start to lay off workers, And therefore, we see a dramatic cycle in which the economy basically goes into sometimes very severe recession. And consumption, I just – maybe it's just completely obvious, but consumption just means folks buying stuff. Exactly, exactly. Sales. You can think about sales of businesses who are selling, you know, Walmart, Target. Um, So what I think has happened in the last three or four days that kind of shapes my opinion on these matters is a few reports that have been released – that suggest very negative consumption happening in the third quarter of 2008. People are not buying stuff. Yeah, I've stopped stopped buying things entirely. I was saying this morning that I went from serving out three pieces of fruit to my family to two, and our income is unchanged. If anything, our personal income has sort of gone up a little bit. Exactly, and I think the numbers from August are particularly striking. There was a report that was just released yesterday for consumer borrowing, so how much consumers are borrowing on credit cards and in auto loans in the month of August, and it absolutely plummeted. It was negative growth for the first wow. time, I think, in almost 15 years. And that's before the crisis really got into its frenetic pace. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's the point that I have been trying to make, you know, both to my colleagues and to friends who work on Wall Street, 
is that consumption seems to have plummeted even before this credit crunch got to its more, most severe stage. How do you that's, fix that? That's a hard thing to fix, but I think our, our standard response to consumption drops has been pretty obvious. Economists have consistently said that you need fiscal stimulus, to be more specific, tax rebates, which is exactly what we did in the second quarter of 2008. And that and, didn't work. Well, no, in fact, I think it did work. I have a colleague, Christian Broda, who has done research using Nielsen, AC Nielsen data that shows that, in fact, in the second quarter of 2008, consumption was boosted by almost, I believe his number is 2.5%, directly in response to these tax rebates. So if you go back and look at GDP growth, at just how fast the economy was growing, in the second quarter of 2008, we actually did pretty well. I think it was positive growth, and 1% or 2%, I don't remember the exact number. But if you remember, when the second quarter numbers came out, people were saying, oh, well, maybe the economy isn't headed for a severe recession. So we know that having fiscal stimulus, basically getting money back to households through tax rebates, through direct checks, we know that affects consumption. It's very well documented that when the government simply sends people checks, they will spend part of those checks. So I think it's been a little surprising to me that all of the policy response up to this point in the last month has been directed at the financial industry and not directly at the household sector. Now, let me be clear about something. Obviously, they're linked. Part of the reason consumption is dropping is because, likely, people can't get loans through... Yeah, that was what I wanted to ask. Are, are, are people not borrowing on their credit cards and not borrowing to buy cars because they because the bank says, sorry, pal, we're not lending you the money, or is it that they're not even asking the bank? That's a huge question that I wish I could answer more definitively, but what I will say... And is that because you personally don't know, or it's just I unknowable? I personally don't know, and the data are really hard to come by. There is no doubt that credit standards, lending standards, I'm sorry, by banks uh, to consumers have tightened enormously, not in September, all the way back since August 2007. I mean, this has been a very long, sustained period of banks just basically be un unwilling to finance mortgages, home equity lines of credit. This has been a long-standing thing. It's been pretty shocking that consumption has held up throughout until probably the third quarter. Now, I also think that it could be independent of the credit crunch. Housing prices are plummeting. Gas prices have increased. President Bush has gotten on TV and told everyone that the world is about to end. There are all these reasons that independent of the credit crunch, would lead consumers to cut back on their expenditure. So is there a role of the credit crunch in the drop in consumption we're currently seeing? There is no doubt. There is a role. I don't know right now if it's the major role, if it's the major thing. Like uh, Laura was saying, I mean, a lot of people, I think, are just not buying things because they're scared of the way the economy looks, not because they can't get a loan from the bank. Amr Sufi, a professor of economics at the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. Thank you so much for um, depressing us in a different way. We're, we've been depressed in, uh, in, in one way so much this week. It's nice yeah, to I was be, getting tired of that. It's nice to be depressed in a different way. Yeah. Let me just say, Adam, I'm actually a professor of finance, not economics. I am an economist by training, but just, just to make sure that that's clear. <laughs> the economics guys may, may say, hey, wait, why is a finance guy claiming to be a professor of economics? So. All right. Amr Sufi claims to be a professor of economics, <laughs> exactly. but on careful research, we've learned that he's truly a professor of finance. Exactly. Okay. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks. Bye. Bye. 
That was Amr Sufi. He's a real economist. We promise you that, although his title is professor of finance. We actually reached him. on He was celebrating the post-Ramadan Eid holiday at his parents' home in Topeka, Kansas. Let's do some more news. As we've been reporting, a number of European banks have tumbled in the last few days. On Saturday, the leaders of the EU got together to say how they would take care of the economy, except they didn't exactly say how they were going to take care of it. And that got Simon Johnson to get out his typewriter. He banged out something for the Financial Times called, The Europeans Still Do Not Get It. What qualifies Johnson to judge them? Well, he's a former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. He's currently a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And he so happens to run a website about the economy called BaselineScenario.com. That's a really great site. He's doing what we're doing. We get into it in the interview, but go to BaselineScenario.com. He's trying to just break it down, make it clear. Uh, This is an interview I did with Alex Bloomberg yesterday. Our baseline view is that the U.S. is going into a fairly severe recession, but but can bounce out of it pretty quickly because of the nature of the U.S., and we think policymakers will get their heads around things pretty quickly. What the real danger, uh, and this recession obviously affects everyone. I mean, the the U.S. has got pneumonia. Everybody's going to get some version of pneumonia. Um, The problem that what's really worrying us, I think this is what's what's worrying the the, the markets uh, right now, is that the response from the Europeans is really quite disappointing. They, they don't have their act together in terms of coordinating even within the Eurozone. That's the group of European countries that, that share the Euro. And then there's, there's, there's conflicts or, or tension between that group and people who are not in the Euro, like the, the UK and, and the Swiss. And then there's, there's tension and, 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 and they're not getting on very well between people who are in the European Union and not in the European Union. It's a complete mess. It's a complete mess in Europe. And is there a way to understand why they can't just get together is it, you know, is it France versus Germany? Is that the central argument? Is it the UK versus the continent? Or is it everyone against everyone? I think it's all of the above. So there was a France, there was a great France versus Germany moment last week, I believe on Thursday, when the French popped the question uh, of a bailout fund uh, to, to a European gathering. And this was the idea that all the European countries would jointly stand ready to bail out any bank in any European country. Well, it was the European Union. Remember? In the There's European the Union, thing, yeah, yes, but yeah, right. Say, exactly, yeah, exactly right. that idea. And, and, and the German reaction was uh, uh, no, and it'll always be no. Of course, <laughs> three days later, the German banking system ran into the wall, and, and um, one of their big real estate, the second largest uh, mortgage lender, had to be rescued not once but twice because the first rescue fell to pieces. So I don't, you know, I don't think the Germans will want to go in with the French in a bailout fund. But in fact, uh, all the um, EU finance ministers met and had some hand-wringing and came out with, with, with a pretty lame statement uh, of general principles or whatever. Principles, principles is what you put in your statement when you, when you don't have anything really to announce. Um, so, you know, are they, I don't know, they may be making progress, maybe they're just bouncing off each other at this point. And is it, is it one of those things where it's like where the Germans have, have, a, have an economic argument to back up their decision not to do it? Or is it more simply, no, we we had, until two days ago, we had what we thought were um, sound practices, and you guys did not have sound practices, and we're not going to help you out of your mess? Is- I think there's, there's a couple of um, sort of wrong ideas that, that, mm-hmm. are, that, are, that are looking here. I'm afraid the Germans have got two of them, and the, well, the Brits have got them too, the same two ideas, and they sort of they vary a little bit around, around the continent. First idea is that inflation is still a, a, a serious problem. Right. It's not. I mean, we're, we're heading into a, a terrible credit crisis. You know, you should think of it, you know, I don't know if it's 1929 or 1931 or, you know, 1929 to 1933 all in three weeks because things move a lot faster now, but it's very bad. Uh, and the second one is they're very worried about moral hazard. Moral hazard is the idea that if you bail people out, they will 
next time or very soon go out and make the same mistakes again, and you're sort of encouraging bad behavior. Well, I think moral hazard is a serious issue in financial systems um, often. But what I would say to that is, you know, if you were to come across the Titanic sinking, should you, you know, would you hang back saying, hmm, if I rescue some people, that might affect shipbuilders' incentives down the road right, to build right. safe ships. No, of course not. You, you would go in and save as many people as, as you could, and then you would go and talk to the shipbuilders afterwards pretty, in pretty, un, uh, pretty certain terms about what they need to do um, to improve their practices. Right. And so, so the Europeans, are, is it hopeless? What, what, what's your sense of what we can expect? It's not hopeless. Uh, these are smart people. They, they take their jobs seriously. They, they learn. And they are coming. The fact they're all coming to Washington for the G7 meeting um, of industrialized countries and then the big, there's a big meeting on Saturday of almost all the finance ministers in the world. Um, th- these are important learning experiences. They're going to be hearing it from a lot of other countries. And they're going to, the Europeans are going to come under a lot of pressure to, to sort out their act out. They're going to try and turn around, I think, and blame the U.S., um, and if it turns into a mutual recrimination show, that will be very bad. But I think that um, probably they will start to think more concretely about measures they can actually take. And you know, every time, a, every time a serious central bank like the Fed makes an innovation like supporting the commercial paper market, other central banks look at that and they, they see what happens and they watch it. And then you know, if it goes reasonably well, they'll think about how to apply that in, in their own experience. So these are not stupid people, and they're not people who are stuck forever in the same mental model. They will update. But they'll update uh, a little bit slowly because that's the nature of the, the culture in those organizations and, and what they've been trained to do. Can I, can I jump in with, with a question? And maybe If this is too big a question, maybe we'll move on. But uh, you said that, that, that you're worried that they're going to blame the United States. And is, are you worried about that because it's wrong to blame the United States, or are you worried about it because it will just set – it will just sort of – Poison the inti- poison this sort of co- cooperation that needs to. Well, go it's on. only poison the cooperation, uh, and you know, Mr. Paulson approached them. I think it was three weeks ago now to cooperate on his initial bailout plan, and, and the right. rest, six of the G7 said no way. That was a big mistake on their part, um, and so you know, and they said it's your problem. You sort it out. It, you know, it, it's more complex than that. The European banks bought about a half of all the uh, securities built on on what we now call toxic debt. Right. The, the estimates done by the IMF back in the spring. Um, which have been disputed but never refuted, and I think they're holding up quite well, actually, is that there was roughly 50-50 where the bad stuff and the losses uh, were going to be between Europe and the U.S. Now, within Europe, there was variation. Within Europe, um, people you know, like the Germans and the French claimed they had relatively little of it, and that was part of the inability to get ahead of it and, and, and maybe contributing still to the paralysis. But, of course, we've moved on a lot from that. Now it's a very general crisis of confidence in, 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 in the global financial system. Um, and um, I'm afraid it's going to get worse before it gets better. Well, thanks so much to Simon Johnson. That helped me a lot understand some of these challenges. Meanwhile, Tom Youngs of Pittsburgh checked in with a question about the bailout of AIG. Tom notes that the U.S. rescued the insurer with an $85 billion loan. And then I hear yesterday that a couple executives there were testifying in front of Congress about some what would seem excessive spending at a resort in California. I got to thinking, if the federal government owns 80% of this company, is there some role the federal government should be playing in management or control of AIG at this point? Tom, that's a really great question. I want to talk about AIG, and then I want to talk about this issue of government control more broadly. Basically, what happened is the Federal Reserve, um, well, we can just call it, they bailed out AIG after we've done a lot of reporting on it, after the massive world's biggest insurance company came close to collapsing. And in return, the U.S. government um, has warrants for stock 
basically it gives them control of the company, 79.5% ownership of the company. And right away, they used that control. They got rid of chief execu- the chief executive. They got rid of a bunch of senior executives, put in people apparently chosen by Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson to run the day-to-day operations. Now, um, what you're talking about is a few days later, um, uh, some leading executives spent $440,000 at the St. Regis Resort south of Los Angeles. Um, The AP tells us it also included $23,380 worth of spa treatments. I didn't know that was possible. I'm sorry, but... (laughs) Well, I don't see how many people it is. Well, come on, you can get your whole eyebrows tweezed or well, whatever for like 20 bucks. Let's say it was 50 bucks. people. That's 500 each. I don't know. I don't know, man. Anyway, it's a company with 116,000 employees, according to Wikipedia. Um, it has assets over a trillion dollars. I mean, it's a massive company, and the U.S. government is definitely not approving everything. It doesn't have middle managers in there. You know, uh, it, it basically put in a leadership team and, and is allowing that leadership team to run things. A broader point and a crucial point over the next weeks and months and years, a crucial, crucial point is what is the U.S. government's role in private industry? And this is a new question. This is the question for all of us as citizens, for the government right now. I I covered the war in Iraq, and I was in Iraq the week after the ground war ended, um, April, I think I arrived April 12th, 2003. And I remember later that week, I happened upon a shoe factory in Baghdad. And this was a factory that had been saved from looters. It was totally intact. And I walked in, and the entire staff was sitting in the lobby and I said, oh, are you guys, you can't operate the machinery? They said, no, no, we have all the oil, we have a generator, we have everything we need, we have the raw material, but we don't know how many shoes to make or what kind because usually it's the government that tells us. Wow. And in a place like Iraq before the war or in the Soviet Union or in other you know, socialist economies, you actually have a guy in the ministry of industry or whatever who sits there and says – all right, shoe company X, you make 3,000 loafers this week. And it is not a market mechanism. It's not people buying and selling. And I would, I had this sort of frustrating and fascinating talk with these folks where I said, well, there's people out there who want shoes. You can make shoes. And they said, no, no, we get our instructions from the government. And I think it's safe to say that virtually nobody in or out of the U.S. government wants that to happen for a variety of reasons. The government is generally considered not very good at deciding how to run private companies. I mean, the government, you you give a lot of power usually to one person who's a bureaucrat rather than the much more complex market mechanism that exists in a free market. But we're in a situation where a lot of companies in America are collapsing and the U.S. government is stepping in. So what And we taxpayers are stepping in. So don't we have a right to call the shots? This is a fundamental question that hasn't been answered yet. In the uh, Bernanke-Paulson plan that was passed by Congress and signed by the president last week, there is the option of buying stock, the government directly buying ownership of companies, but the language seems to suggest they are going to have non-voting shares, meaning they would they could own most of a company but not have the right to put someone on the board, not have the right to, to 
boss people around. If we use the AIG model, where it's literally the Treasury Secretary picking the CEO and directing the actions of the CEO of most of the major financial institutions, I mean, it's hard to say that's not socialism. It sure smells a lot like it. So um, we don't know yet. The plans are not at all clear. We don't know what's going to happen. But this, for guys like me, for reporters who cover this, for many, many people, this is going to be perhaps the single most important question of, of the next year. Thank you, Tom Youngs. We hope that helps. And next up, we have our very own Planet Money's David Kestenbaum. He sent us this. This is just lovely. Um, it turns out that David is knows this guy who went to school with the man who is suddenly the most important person in the U.S. economy, possibly. Um, and we've got a picture to prove it. We have a picture to prove it. Uh, Kessenbaum's friend is Tom Daltel. He took a class with Neil Kashkari. Now, Neil Kashkari is the man who is – it's his job to spend that $700 billion, which effectively means – He's getting less sleep than we are. Yeah. He can choose which banks survive, which ones fail – I mean, not to be too dramatic, the future of the U.S. economy is in his 35-year-old hands. Uh, he and Tom Daltel went to school at the University of Illinois. It was unbelievable. It was I, – I, uh, well, first I didn't know who he was. I just thought i know that guy. Then I read that he was in charge of $900 billion or $700 billion or whatever it is. And um, <laughs> You thought, I don't – you thought, wait, I know that guy. Yeah, it was very odd. All right. So tell me, tell me what you remember from. Uh, so you went to college with him? Yes, I was an undergraduate. He was a graduate student. We were both in mechanical engineering. He um, was the head of the solar car project. The solar car project, which is the I think it's the Sun Race. It's a. It's now got a new name. I think it's the North American Solar Car Race. So basically, you build you build solar cars and you race them against other smarty pants. Exactly. Engineers. Okay. Exactly. So. Um, so we had a car. The University of Illinois had a car in the race, and he was in charge of directing all the students building that car. Okay, so he was running the team, and you were on the team building the car. Correct. What else do you remember? Um, he was funny. I remember in meetings, he would. There was one time we we were up early, and we were hooking up the car. They were hooking up the trailer to bring the car somewhere, and there was a mechanical engineer who was a PhD student who didn't know which way to put the lock washer on the trailer hitch. And he thought that was very funny. He was making fun of him for that. Um, he talked about how all the electrical engineers lived in math space. Lived in math space? Correct. Yeah. Did he live in math space? No, he was pretty down to earth. What was he like as an organizer? Or was he really intense about it? What was he like? He was, he was intense. He was good. He was intense. He, um, he, uh, he was good at getting people motivated. Um, I remember at the time I, I, I thought a couple of his decisions were a little strange. For instance, I, um, we were working on building our own motor, actually constructing from scratch with wires and windings and resin our own motor to drive this car. And I, I thought even as an undergraduate, I thought for sure that this was not an efficient way to get a motor for our car, that we were trying to be as light as possible and to be as efficient as possible. So, And what what happened? Our, we never got anything. We spent a lot of time, you know, winding copper wire around um, models and then encasing it in resin. He spent a lot of time in the lab, um, in particular, uh, more than, a lot more than I did. But um, in the end, we it, that didn't work at all. I don't think we ever got to a point where we even tested one of our own motors. So you went and bought one. We went and bought one, yeah. Which is what he's doing now. He's buying up things. 
yeah, maybe that was the start. Um, so, uh, what do you think about him managing this seven hundred billion dollar uh, stabilization plan? Well, I, you know, like I haven't seen him in twelve years, so I, I'm not. Other than what I've just read anecdotally, I don't really know that much about what he's been doing. I know, I know he was ambitious um, and smart. Not ambitious in a bad way, but he seemed like he was, you know, he was driven. Um, he was smart. He um, obviously has done a lot. I, so I guess I would say he's, um, you know, I don't have any reason to think he couldn't do it. Was your reaction when you saw the photo like, wow, this guy I know is now in charge of $700 billion? Yes, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> he, um, I've actually thought of him several times since we were on the solar car project together and um, had wondered what he was up to. I figured he was working for GM and doing some kind of automotive or um, some kind of high-tech design work which I guess he was for a while working on satellites. Yeah, but you're wrong now. <laughs> now I'm wrong, <laughs> which is interesting because actually now I'm I, I'm an economist also and work in policy, so it's funny that uh, I've taken somewhat similar tracks, although my budget's uh, somewhat smaller than his budget, apparently. <laughs> Thanks, David Kestenbaum and Tom Daltel. And that's the Planet Monday podcast for today, October 8th. We are always online. We've got the blog. We've got the podcast at npr.org slash money. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Laura Conaway. Thank you for listening. <laughs>